Machine learning applications are widely deployed across the software industry. Most of these applications use supervised learning, a process in which labeled datasets are used to find correlations between the labels and the trends in the underlying data. But supervised learning is only one application of machine learning. Another broad set of machine learning methods is described by the term reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning involves an agent interacting with its environment. As the model interacts with the environment, it learns to make better decisions over time based on a reward function. Newer AI applications will need to operate in increasingly dynamic environments and react to changes in those environments, which makes reinforcement learning a useful technique. Reinforcement learning has several attributes that make it distinctly different than supervised learning from a engineering standpoint. Reinforcement learning relies on simulation and distributed training to rapidly examine how different model parameters could affect the performance of a model in different scenarios. Ray is an open source project for distributed applications. Although Ray was designed with reinforcement learning in mind, the potential use cases go far beyond machine learning, and this project could be as applicable and broadly useful as distributed systems projects like Apache Spark and Kubernetes. Ray is a project out of the Berkeley RISE Lab, which is the same place that birthed Spark, Mesos, and Luxio. The RISE Lab is led by Jan Stoika, a professor of computer science at Berkeley. He's also the co-founder of AnyScale, a company that was started to commercialize Ray by offering tools and services for enterprises looking to adopt Ray. Jan Stoika returns to the show to discuss reinforcement learning, distributed computing, and the Ray project. You can find all of our previous episodes, including that previous episode with Jan Stoika, which was about serverless, in the Software Daily website or the Software Daily mobile apps for iOS or Android. You can search for all of our past episodes, all 1,500 plus of our episodes. You can look for technologies and companies that you're curious about. And if there's a subject that you want to hear covered, you can feel free to leave a comment on this episode or send us a tweet at software underscore daily. We'd love to hear from you. Jan Stoika, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Happy to be here. When I interact with an application that has machine learning, there's often a long delay between when I give that application an input and when it takes that input into account. And I don't get the feeling that the systems that I interact with are continuously learning. Why is it hard to design machine learning applications that are continuously learning? That's an excellent question. And uh, there are several reasons for that. Let me start with the first one of the first one is that, say, you are going to get new data and you are going to learn a new model. And you want to deploy that model, right? Because it's based on what you learn. But how do you know that model is good, right? So the operation process to deploy a model into production is not that easy. Typically, what you want to do, you want to test to do rollout deployment. So you test your new model on a small number of users. If that is good, then you are going to increase the deployment. So all of this process takes time. So that's one issue. The other issue is about how long it's actually is taking to train a new model. As you know, 
the neural network models are growing in size exponentially. So the more parameters you have, the more weights you have, the more it takes to train. Actually, the training time is super linear in the size of the model. So that's another key limitation. And the other thing, the, the last thing, is fundamentally building online more real-time systems is hard right? It's hard because, first of all, you want to provide the responsiveness, you want to provide the small latency, but then you want to provide also fault tolerance, because what happens when you have faults? You want to take into account stragglers, machines which kind of are slow for one reason or another. So all of these reasons makes continuous learning really difficult. And As we build applications with tighter and tighter machine learning feedback loops that are responding to dynamic environments, reinforcement learning becomes more useful or more important. Can you explain why that is? What's the connection between reinforcement learning and continuously learning applications? Yeah, yeah. Again, a great question. So what, you know, a lot of progress which happened in the last decade in AI, machine learning, has been due to these two big paradigms, basically supervised and unsupervised learning. And supervised learning, when you hear, you know, you use when you hear about image classification and things like that, you use supervised learning. And what supervised learning, you basically train a model by showing it inputs and outputs, correctly labeled inputs, right? And so you have a training stage, and then once you train the model, then you take the model, you deploy, say, in production, and then you see new inputs, like new images, and you are going to classify them, right? So now, reinforcement learning, it's approach which is radically different. In reinforcement learning, you have an agent which continuously interacts with the environment, and through its interaction, it can change the environment, right? So again, supervised learning doesn't really interact with the environment, doesn't really change the state of the environment. It's only observing it. Like an example of reinforcement learning application would be an application which plays a game, like a chess game or, you know, AlphaGo playing Go from Google. And in that particular case, you can think about the environment is a board with the position of the pieces, okay? So this is what the agent you are training sees. And you are training the agent to, based on the observation, to, in this case of the board and it's the, the position of the pieces, to make a decision, to take an action. And the action is to make a move on the board. By making a move, you change the state of the environment. And the goal of this move is to get the ultimate reward. In this case, to win the game. Right? So this is what it is. So you can think about reinforcement learning, like playing with the environment, observing environment. Based on the observation, you take an action, you change the state of the environment, you observe again, and you do it again. And the main goal is to come up with an agent which maximizes some objective reward, winning the game. And when you do that, when you, like for instance, you play a game, if you win, then what you do, you look back at all the action you made and you reinforce these actions, meaning that next time when you are going to play, you are going to take this action with a higher probability, right? If you lose, you, go, you do the opposite. 
So all these actions which you took, they are going to be a little bit less likely you are going to take next time when you are playing the game. Now, some of the action, like some of the moves, can be both part of the winning game or a losing game, right? But the hope is that the good actions you are going to see much more in a winning game than in a losing game. So this is what is called reinforcement learning because based on the outcome, you reinforce the good actions you made. When we consider applications that are using reinforcement learning, we can also think about the importance of simulation because whenever you're, if you're thinking about a chess game, chess, it's very easy to enumerate the different possible moves in any given scenario. So you can imagine the different scenarios and simulate how the game would look as those different decision trees might progress. And if we have all these simulations, it becomes easier to think about we could parallelize all of these different simulations occurring in order to come to a conclusion more rapidly. Can you describe the connection between reinforcement learning and simulation and parallelism? Absolutely. Actually, reinforcement learning as a workload, it's a very complex workload, right? Because you, first of all, this agent, it's learning what we call a policy, a model. So you need to do training on that policy, right? And the training itself can be done in parallel. The big models, in order to, you know, to train fast, you are going to do that in parallel. Then once you have the model, you kind of, you have to observe the environment and make a decision. So it's like you need to serve that model. And finally, like you said, in many, many of these cases, you are going to resort to, to use simulations in order to simulate the environment to learn faster right? If you play games, yeah, it's, it's very easy. You are going to simulate the games. But, you know, the one other thing to consider is like in many other more practical applications, you do have simulators. So in many industries, when people make decisions, very expensive decisions, they typically use simulators, right? If you want to figure out you are in, say, you know, it's oil industry, you want to drill a hole in the ground, then that is very expensive. So you need, you, you're having to do some simulations before doing that. Obviously, you have in manufacturing, when you build the cars, before you build the car, you kind of simulate it, right? Simulate how is going this form to behave in a friction with the air and so forth, things like that. So almost in all these fields, you kind of have these simulators. So you can actually use reinforcement learning for these practical applications, just doing a much more guided and much faster, take much faster decisions based on using these simulations. And then this decision actually you can apply in the real world. Now, like you said, it's like all, you know, what is the connection between simulation and parallelism? Well, the more simulation you can do, the faster you are going to learn, the better decision you are going to make, right? And like even simple things like a chess game or, you know, like Go, you know, when you start to think about a few moves ahead, the number of possibilities increases totally exponential. Right? So that's why, you know, the parallelism, if you can increase the level of parallelism, you can do more simulations, you can go deeper, right? In the, so to speak, search space. So what this means that you are going to make better decisions, right? If I am playing chess and I can, you know, look four moves ahead, I can take much better decisions than if I can look only three moves ahead. The motivation for this discussion about 
distributed reinforcement learning is that you've worked on Ray and Anyscale, which is a productization of Ray. And the underlying idea there is that the software systems we've built for supervised learning may not be a great fit for some of the reinforcement learning tasks. Part of that reason is because in supervised learning, the training and the serving process can be handled separately. But in reinforcement learning, the workloads of training and serving and simulation are all tightly coupled. There are probably some other architectural reasons why supervised learning is considerably different than reinforcement learning. Describe the ways in which the tools that we have available pre-Ray, perhaps, are insufficient for reinforcement learning. Again, great question, Jeff. And if you look back, you, you know, you asked the first question, your first question about was continuous learning, which is related with reinforcement learning and obviously online learning. In many of these systems, what you need to do, you need to do a few things, right? You need to ingest the data, right? And to process the data, featureize the data. Then you need to train, right, a model. You need to serve a model, right? And then go back. So traditionally, and if you have reinforcement learning, you also need to do the simulations, right? So you need to do some data processing, you need to do some training, you need to do serving of the models in production, and you need to do simulations, okay? So traditionally, for different workloads, we had different systems, okay? And especially since we wanted to scale up all these workloads, right? You want to scale up serving, you want to scale up training, and so forth. So when you have different systems, and you want to have one application to build one application to integrate, to stitch together all these systems, that's very difficult. First, uh, development, right? You have to handle different systems with different APIs, possible different languages, right? That's one. Then, say you build your application, then you need to deploy it. It's again, when you deploy it, you have to deploy different systems and to make sure that they work well together. And the third is really the performance because now if you have different systems, to move the data between the systems, you may need to go through different storage systems, different formats, and so forth. This absolutely takes time. Right? So all of this together, so again, when you, and we know that when you have multiple systems, it's going to be much harder not only to build, but to operate and to make that system fast. So, you know, a long time ago, we had this, you know, some favorite analogy, like it used to be a long time ago, before we have smartphones, we had a bunch of mobile devices for different functions. Right? You had, obviously, you have a cell phone to make calls. Then you have a GPS for maps, for directions. Then you have, you know, some video playing game, mobile video playing game, Nintendo or whatever. Then you have some uh, camera, digital cameras, right? So you have all of these things, right? But if you want to put together some an application, you know, you take a picture, then you analyze the pictures, and then you import it in your game and things like that, it's very difficult. Right, And then when a smartphone arrives, iPhone and so forth, put all of this together, and now it's much easier. You have only one device, you support all the workloads, and it's, it not only makes possible to build the application you already built better, but it enables new applications. So that's kind of the analogy 
you know, I like to think when we are talking about where we are today, we're building this end-to-end continuous learning, reinforcement learning application requires teaching together different systems, like, you know, for training, you are going to use TensorFlow Distributed or Horovod. For serving, you are going to use maybe you know, there are a variety of systems out there. Many of them are homegrown. Then once you train, it's not only training a model, but then you need to tune that model, right? High parameter search, right? high parameter tuning, right? You need a system for that as well, right? Because you may want to see, okay, I have this network architecture, it's kind of working well, but what if I change the number of layers? What if I change the number of neurons in each layer? What if I change the activation function for neurons and things like that? So then it's a huge space you want to search to find the best model. And for that alone, you have other systems like Seacopt, right? So, yeah, you, you have to put all of this together, and it's incredibly difficult. The observation that there's a variety of different systems that are being put together to solve machine learning problems. That seems like it's generally true for machine learning problems. That doesn't seem something like something that's relegated to reinforcement learning. Is there something about reinforcement learning that places such a constraint on these systems that we already have that makes it such that we cannot do this stitching together for reinforcement learning? So you already said that earlier on. So, and we discussed it. So with supervised learning, you can, you know, supervised learning application is more amenable to build and deploy it in different stages. You do training offline. Okay, you can use the system. Then you take the model, you put it in production, where you monitor in production, right? So it's kind of coarse grain. Right, you have in this stage through training, in this stage you do serving and monitoring and things like that. So, and you update your model, you know, sometimes every few days or every few, even every few weeks, right? But with reinforcement learning, like we discussed, you have, you need to train the model as new data arrives, right? And as you are, you need to do simulations, right? And you need to do serving, right? Because once you have a train a model, a policy, they need to serve it, right? It's like you see the environment changes, you take a new action, right, based on the policy. So you have all of these workloads that have to work together, right? So that's what it makes much more difficult. As we get into the programming paradigm of Ray, there are two kinds of computational tasks that Ray is made to address. Those are task parallel and actor-based computations. And the task parallel ones are things that are, they're stateless. They can be parallelized. And the actors are stateful computations. Can you give examples of each of these kinds of computations and how they might be useful in a machine learning application? Absolutely. Let me take a step back. So it's about task and actors. So fundamentally, in, in many programming languages, especially in imperative programming languages, you have two constructs when it comes to program, right? Two main abstractions. One is functions, right? You have functions, and then you have classes or objects, right? So tasks are basically in Ray and in other systems are basically executing that function remotely, right? And an actor is instantiating a class or an object remotely, right? An actor is like a a small microservice. Right? 
So that's why Ray is so general because it takes these two fundamental abstractions and gives the ability under the hood to the developer to execute them distributedly and in parallel, right? So now you ask about, okay, you have uh, task and actors and when we are going to use, give examples about application for each of them. So for whenever you, the task are best, for instance, when you do some data processing. You have some set of data, you want, say, to process it, like you have an image, you want to do some image transformation. Then you run a function and maybe you can execute it where the data is stored and ingest some images and process them and then write the output, right? And the function is gone. It's, that's what we say, it's stateless because you know, every function after it operates, all its output is outside, is stored outside as a function. Now, with actors, actors have the internal state. It's like, again, like a class, like a object class, right? So you, you are going to encapsulate the state there, and then you are going to have the methods you are going to invoke on that object to change the state. So where do you use these actors? Right? So you use actors when you want performance on operating on a certain state. Like for instance, let's say and in the, on one particular application you want to train a model and the, obviously today most of the training will happen on the GPU. Okay? So if you want to use functions, this means that you are going and you do a, some training episode, you are going to have to read the data to the GPU, train on it, and get the results out once the, the training episode is done. If I use actors, I can actually have the actor basically own the GPU, and each method of invocation will be a training episode. Right? So every time I'm going to basically, maybe the first time I need to, to move the data to the GPU, but the next training episode, I'm not going to move any data. Instead, I'm, I can reinitialize, say, instead the weights. So reinitializing the weights on the GPU is much easier than ingesting, the, you know, getting the weights from outside the GPU, moving on the GPU, and then moving them out. Yeah. Right? So that's one. Another thing is that, which is a classic one, it's streaming. If you dive to streaming, as you get new data, and if it's changing some internal state, then you don't want, say, at every message to write the state outside on an external storage, right? In order to have a stateless computation. Another example will be, you know, is very state is like games. The games, they have internal state. If you think like a game, it's like it's a big actor, right? It's like, it's like you act, you know, you click on the keyboards or whatever, and these are the actions, they go, they change the state of the, of the game, but the state is internal to that game. That's another example, right? So in summary, you are going to use actors when you want to really collocate 
the state with the computation for performance reasons. You are going to use stateless operators, in particular when there is you want to process lots of data and it's you are going to execute that function. Actually, you can also execute send the function where the data is, process the data, and write the output, and you are done. Two components of the Ray architecture are a task scheduler and a metadata store. Can you describe these two components? Yes. So there are a few questions you need to answer when you build a system like Ray. So again, like with Ray, you want to support both actors and you are support both tasks. And one question when you are going to create, say, a new task or an actor, because you can execute them remotely, where you are going to execute them, right? And you want to execute them on a node which has the required resources. So for instance, if you have an actor which is doing some training, you really want to execute on a node which has a GPU. If you, like earlier on, like we discussed, if you want to execute a function which is doing some data processing, you may want to schedule it on the node who has that data. Right? So, and by the way, the problem is that you don't have only one entity, one node, you know, trying to schedule the task or actor it has created, but any node in the system can do that. Right? So now you have this kind of pretty complex scheduling problem in which you have a distributed scheduling problem in which multiple nodes wants to issue a issue and wants to schedule multiple tasks and actors. And there can be many of those. The task can be very short, it can be you know a few tens of milliseconds or something like that. So in a large system you can have millions at the same time, you can have millions of tasks and actors being scheduled. So for that one, again, it's in many systems before, what you have, the scheduler is, is kind of centralized. Right? You have only one entity. Imagine that like if I want to schedule something, I'm going to send to this guy, say it's called master or some, something like that, and ask that guy, master, to schedule on my behalf. And that's an easier problem because the master will have more of a global state. There is only one guy who schedules the task on our actors. However, like we discussed, this, this, the problem with that is not doesn't scale. Okay? So now you have to distribute the scheduling and this is what makes it difficult and one is one of the innovation in, in Ray, having a distributed scheduler where you allow every node to independently schedule and then there is a way in which you are going to allow mistakes to happen when say for instance too many tasks are scheduled on a node and then to correct those mistakes by taking some of these tasks and moving to another node till everything is more or less load balanced. So that was about scheduling, about this uh, metadata store, the, we call it global control store. It's again, in a distributed system, you want, you know, building a distributed system is hard, right? Especially when you want to be high performance and fault tolerant. So. When you, let's take, there are two reasons for this global control store. First, when I schedule a task, the task creates an object. And that object can be used by other task or actor. Okay? So, if I schedule a task who uses an object created by another task, I need to know where that object is. Right? And 
in race, things are very dynamically. Actually, it's possible to schedule a task which require an object which has not been created yet. Okay? Like a future. Like a future, exactly. Like a future, absolutely. So now the question is that how do I know, right? How does this function know where to get the object from, right? So our answer to that, to use this global control store, whenever the objects are created, you write in the global control store the metadata of the object about saying where the object has been created. So this allows you to discover all the objects you need to perform the computation. You, in this case, being a function or an actor, right? That's one reason. The other reason for a global control store, it's about its fault tolerance. Right? Especially for stateless operators like functions, one way and some systems they do implement fault tolerance is basically by replaying the computation. Right? If I lose the data, take a step back. There are two general ways to handle fault tolerance. One, you are going to replicate the data. So if you have a failures, you have a replica still around. But that's, again, for when you have large amounts of data and so forth, it's quite expensive. Another way is basically this using this lineage. And many systems like you know, Spark and so forth, they use lineage. So with lineage, basically, instead of replicating the data, you, in some sense, you replicate the computation. Right? If I lost some data, I am going to re-execute all this operation, all the tasks who created the data in the first place. But now, how do I know what functions were used to create a particular data item, right? How do I know this lineage for the data? So the answer here is that, well, you are going to store that in this metadata store, in the global control store. So if I ask for an object, and object is no longer around, then I can look at the metadata in this global control store, and then from that metadata, from that which maintains the lineage of the object I'm looking for, I'm going to know which function, which task I have to run in order to create, recreate the object. So I run those, I recreate the object, I use the object. Does the developer do the checkpointing for that lineage, or does the system take care of that? Excellent question. There are two abstractions again. Like, it's tasks, stateless tasks, and then there are actors. For stateless tasks, the developer doesn't need to do anything. Because, again, they don't have internal state. And I have lineage, I can just rerun them. For actors, things are a little bit more complicated because the actors have internal state, right? And for that, we have different ways to handle failures, but one is in which the developer will checkpoint periodically the state in the actor. So if the actor fails, then when actors is recreated, restarted, then it's going to restart from the previous checkpoint. Implementation question, when you're building that storage system, can you take something off the shelf like etcd and build something over it or do you have to build it entirely from scratch actually we always try to use whatever our best systems are available there and you can take something like etcd the one thing though is that you need to 
take something which is very high throughput and low latency. Because if you want to write to this global control store, you know, you cannot slow down too much the execution of the task or method of the actors. And actually in Ray right now, we are using Redis, the in-memory, you know, store. And, you know, we have multiple shards so we can do many of the updates and reads in parallel. And obviously, you can use ETCD to provide fault tolerance for those shards. However, I want to say even now, it's like obviously, Ray is a continuously evolving system. And even with this in-memory store, so it's again, it's not an OSSD, now S3 or whatever, everything is in-memory. And even with everything in, mem in memory, uh, things can be slow. So actually we try now with new re-architecture of Ray to move as much data as possible to, so to speak, to the workers, right? Out of the critical path, right? We want to reduce the traffic between these workers which handle task execution and actor executions and this global control store. To talk about the applications of Ray, I want to get a little bit into the company that you're building around Ray, AnyScale. You've had some early enterprise users of Ray. You've had some interactions with them. Can you tell me about the interactions with those enterprise users, how they're using Ray? Absolutely. So Ray at this core, it's a very general system. It's a very general system. And while initially we started building a system for reinforcement learning, because the reinforcement learning, like we discussed, is such a general workload, then it drove us to build a very general system. So we have quite a few use cases. I'm going to enumerate a few of them. So one, you know, there is, you know, very large company, it's a financial service company, probably I cannot give the name, but it's using Ray to do some of this continuous learning you mentioned about. It's about, you know, like online learning. And their application is that when you open or you look at their mobile application, then they want to, you know, promote the products of their, of their affiliates or, you know, recommend your new services. So basically it's a recommendation system. The key there is that they want it to update the model very fast because they want to learn very fast, for instance, if there is a new product, who is buying it? Because if he knows who is buying it, I can immediately recommend to other people, you know, right away right? So I can increase my revenues. And initially, the solution is quite simple, right? First of all, you get the logs from the users, and then you train a model and you serve it, like we discussed. It's the same thing. And they are updating this model every day. But they, they saw that this is too slow, so they wanted to go much faster. And they use the best of breath systems out there for each, you know, for featureization, for training, for serving. So again, like we discussed, different systems. And this is a very, very engineering savvy company. And they went from one day to one hour. And in that process, they improved the click-through rate by 5%, which is pretty huge. So obviously now they wanted to go even lower, right? It's like, do it even faster. And then when they started to look at into Ray, because 
again, using the existing, you know, multiple systems to stitch them together to provide an end-to-end online learning solution was too slow, was too complex. And they use Ray, and because it's Ray, you can do featureization, you can do training, you can do serving in one system, on one platform. You don't, the data is there, it's, you know, it's memory, you don't need to move it around and so forth. And they reduce it from one hour to five minutes. Okay, and they got another, you know, one percent improving in clicks through rate. So that's one example. There are companies who are doing in financial, you know, banks, right? Financial forecast and so forth. They use reinforcement learning to do it. And these are large companies, large enterprise companies, very large. There are companies also they are using for say fraud detection, and in particular, it's for money laundry. Hmm. Right. With money laundry, every transaction, money transactions, it's an edge in the transaction graph. And typically, the way people detect money laundry is when they have a cycle in that graph. So ideally, what you want for each transaction, you want to modify the graph and immediately look at it and see whether this is a money laundry. You suspect this to be a money laundry activity before you make the decision to accept the charge. Right? So you want to do this pretty much in real time. So that's another application. Then there are startups which are doing, you know, are building their infrastructure on top of Ray. In particular, there are two startups I could mention. It's who build their infrastructure on Ray and RLLib, like Bonsai. It's a startup from Berkeley who was actually acquired last year by Microsoft. And Pathmind. Also, they are building their infrastructure on top of Ray and Arlib. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously there are many more, but this is probably give you a taste of what people are doing with Ray. Here you talk about Ray as a general purpose distributed computing framework. It makes me think of it in terms of some of the distributed computing frameworks that have come to market recently. You know, in stark contrast is something like Kubernetes, where Kubernetes is a distributed framework for actual traditional application services, fully-fledged running services that are just distributed onto containers. And then another distributed computing framework that comes to mind is the serverless idea, where the atomic unit of execution is much smaller, much more fine-grained. And if I think about those two kinds of systems, Ray seems a little bit closer to the the serverless paradigm because you are encouraged by the programming API to think of your entire computation as these tasks or these actors, and the system takes care of scheduling those in an intelligent fashion. Absolutely. You are totally correct. Kubernetes, it's orchestration service or resource orchestration. And if you think about Kubernetes, targeted DevOps right? This is what they target. Ray, like serverless, they target developers, programmers. You want to write code, that's, you know, provide you the API and everything to write code and forget hopefully about everything what happens under the hood, right? So yes, it's much closer to serverless. And actually the tasks in Ray are very similar with functions, right? But in addition, Ray has also actors, right? And it's again, if you now you are at the analogy point. It's like actors, you can think of actors like some microservices, right? So in some sense, it's a very high level and, you know, it's not entirely accurate, but maybe helps. It's like, think about Ray that marries serverless with microservices. Right. And those use cases that you described, 
still sound like machine learning use cases. I mean, I guess the the fraud detection one is a little bit less of directly a machine learning use case, but do you have an idea of how the system might be used for more general tasks? Absolutely. Actually, we see that as well. I should have said it. We see a large number of users which have the following problem. And I should have said that right now that Ray provides a Python bindings, Python API. So you have a lot of people which are faced with the following problem. I have an application which is doing whatever, maybe machine learning, maybe some computations, whatever. And you know, I have more data or I need to do more computation, so I want to scale it, right? It's Python application. How am I going to do it? And I mean, you can do it, you can build your own system, you can maybe use you know, Kubernetes plus gRPC and so forth, maybe you can use MPI or something like that, but it's hard. So what Ray has a very, very simple API. At the core, there are only, depends how you count, five, six functions, that's all. So it's very easy to learn. So you have a lot of people who use Ray to scale their existing application. And the cool thing about it, it doesn't, in most of the cases, it doesn't require to rewrite your application, right? So that's why we see more and more people using Ray to scale their existing Python applications. Hmm. Let's zoom out a little bit and we'll begin to wrap up. My sense is that, well, I mean, if you ask a lot of people, they'll tell you, you know, whatever we develop in industry or in the open, in academia, it's great, but ultimately it's 10 years behind whatever Google is developing inside DeepMind or whatever, deep inside the bowels of Google. Do you have a sense of whether that's true? Like, is inside Google or Facebook, are they just like light years ahead of what we're doing? Or what is what we're doing with Ray or whatever other cutting edge system we're developing? Is it child's play compared to what they're doing at Google? Or is it just in a different domain? Is it just slightly different? <sighs> Yeah, that's a great question, and you know, I, I have other hats as academic hat. I think that there are a few answers to that question, and as a high level TLDR, I am optimist. So yeah, the answer. <laughs> yeah. So one answer to that is like you know factual. Actually, we at Berkeley, where I am from, we have these labs, and we build actually successful systems and open source systems before. Apache Spark, for instance, I've been involved also in Apache Spark and Mesos. But I think that if you look forward, yes, I think that you know Google is doing great things. There is no question about that. Maybe Facebook is doing great things. No question about that or Microsoft, right, or Amazon. But I do think that when it comes to also machine learning platforms, eventually a lot of platforms, almost every company is of these companies, they have their own machine learning platforms. Like FB Learning, Michelangelo, obviously, Google has their own and so forth. But they are very integrated in their existing infrastructures, very integrated. So it's very hard to take those out and abstract them away especially because there are many workloads, there are many different systems, so it's very hard. So I think that here, I think it's a great opportunity and it will be a huge value to have 
some systems which can be general supporting machine learning, scalable machine learning applications, reinforcement learning applications, which can be used by everyone. And then if you have that, what you are going to get, you are going to get an almost, hopefully, network effect, right? A lot of innovation. Right, and let's not forget, you know, as a point that you know, not all hope is lost for people outside Google and <laughs> Facebook. I think about, you know, a lot of people from our audience are, you know, they are too young to remember that. I'm not, but you know, think about Linux. When Linux was developed, the question was, what is, a, you know, makes no sense to create a new operating system because. You know, Microsoft has 90% of the market and everyone is using Microsoft. And yes, also Apple then. And why would you even want to create a new operating system, right? What is a chance? You stand no chance, right? It's not only Microsoft has a huge army of engineering doing that, but they have also great applications. So it's not only the operating system, they're all the applications or the entire ecosystem. And look what where we are today. Certainly things, you know, are, you know, are quite different at the minimum. So yeah, I'm really hopeful that we are living in a very dynamic world. Things are moving faster and faster. They are changing faster and faster. And then when in such kind of world, you have more and more opportunities. Well said. So as we wrap up, last time we talked, you mentioned Ray a little bit near the end of the conversation. And I regret not taking a look at it sooner. So I'm hoping to make up for my mistake and. Now I want to ask you once again, what are the projects that are brewing in the lab? What are the other paradigms that we haven't explored in this conversation that perhaps <laughs> the listeners should take a look at and I should take a look at? So clearly one, and we, we touch a little bit over those, is like Ray and it's a, it's a core system. It's a very general system, but then there are a large number of libraries being built on top of it, like reinforcement learning, like Tune, which have parameter, high parameter tuning. We are working at a library to provide serving and many more. So just in that, so to speak, in the Ray ecosystem, there are a lot of interesting things happened. And we, you know, we are also very happy to see more and more contributors from outside the lab and from industry, actually, the vast majority of contributors are from outside Berkeley. The other thing in the lab I would mention, there are two, maybe, you know, again, it's like I am, I don't want to pick, but something is hard to pick. There are a lot of great projects. But one, maybe I, wa I want to mention, once I want to mention, it's about learning on confidential data. So we call this competitive learning. So basically, the problem here is you have multiple organizations which want to cooperate for some mutually beneficial outcome, right? Like, for instance, you have multiple banks which want to cooperate to learn better fraud detection models, right, to detect detection. But obviously, these banks are at the same time competitors, so they cannot share the data with each other. So the question is, how can you learn a model on all these disparate data sets without leaking the information from one bank to another? That's one example. I think the other area we are looking quite a bit is about, you know, program synthesis, how you are going to use machine learning in general, not only end-to-end, but also to generate, to synthesize, say, a set of rules, some programs, right, which will solve your problem, right? We have, for instance, some work in which you, for instance, for 
packet classification in networks. It's a very well-studied problem. So you want to, you know, one way to think about using machine learning is to do end-to-end. -end. You get a packet, you look at the packet header, and you classify it. What to do is it? Drop it forward to intrusion detection box or thing like that, right? But another way, what we do is like instead of doing end-to-end, -end, we use it to generate a decision tree. And the cool thing about that is because a decision tree or this like a synthesized set of rules or programs, they are explainable. They are interpretable, right? You know that one of the biggest challenges with the neural networks is hard to interpret it. It's hard to explain what, why it made a particular decision. So that's one you know, exciting avenue. And in general, using machine learning to improve systems, to do better query optimizations, to optimize compiler betters, the code of the compilers better. Yeah, these are some of the things we are really excited about in the lab at Berkeley. Jan Stoika, thanks for coming back on. Thank you. Thanks for having me.